0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything just outside the norm. I'm Sean, the host for this discussion. On this episode of Strange Matters, I will be talking about the phenomenon known as time slips. Time slips is a term that refers to events in which a person supposedly either leaves their own timeline to get a glimpse of something in the past or future, similar in a way to time traveling, or sees something in the present of a person or object from some other time era. In this episode, I will be going over different instances of the so-called time slips and present various stories of people who have said to experience such things. The topic for this episode was suggested to the podcast by listener Robert, so thank you Robert for sending in this interesting subject. Before we get started, a reminder that Strange Matters Podcast is made possible by our generous supporters over on Patreon. On Patreon, listeners can pledge a small monthly donation, and in exchange can gain access to exclusive bonus episodes. For any listeners who would like to support the podcast, please visit our page at patreon.com slash strange matters. For this episode, I'd like to thank our newest patrons of the show, Christian, Eric, Hannah, and Lariva. And now to discuss the bizarre topic of time slips. Time slips is a sort of umbrella term to refer to any type of event where a person sees or experiences something from another time. There are two main different variations of this phenomenon. The two depend on whether the individual experiencing a time slip is the one who has slipped, so to say, into another timeline other than their own, such as suddenly appearing in a place a hundred years in the past, or if they are seeing something from another time suddenly appear in the present. There are stories of people going to a place and then having an experience like they have somehow been transported to the past or future, seeing the location as it was or could be from another time. Then there are more stories where a person is going about their lives when they have an encounter with someone claiming to be from another time, and these time-slippers seem to be just as confused as the person witnessing them. Time-slips are said to be associated with another phenomenon known as retrocognition, Retrocognition describes instances in which someone has knowledge of a past event which they could not have learned or inferred by normal means. In other words, someone gets knowledge about the past life of someone else without the known or ordinary sources, but rather with some kind of special power of the brain. It has also been considered a type of sixth sense by some people. There have been numerous cases of this so called retrocognition where a person randomly starts to know deeply personal information about some figure from the past, and this information turns out to be true. And it isn't clear where they got this knowledge, as it wasn't available to the public. Time slips are similar in that people experiencing them are said to get a glimpse into the past, and are able to see locations or people and learn or figure things out that isn't widely known. While many stories of time slips describe vastly different times, places, and encounters, a good number of them do share a few common characteristics. Historian and writer Mike Dash describes four of these characteristics. The first is that the person or people involved in a time slip event are fully aware that something strange is going on, but oftentimes the full weight of what they experience doesn't sink in until sometime later. The second common trend in many time slip stories is that those involved experience an unnatural stillness to their surroundings during their experience. The third characteristic is that these time slips are fully immersive, and that the people are not simply seeing something from the past or future, but can actually interact in the new environment or location, and anyone else there. The fourth common element is where time slips are connected with retrocognition, and describes how in many stories it is confirmed that the people involved saw or experienced something from another time that they should not have known about. Of these four characteristics. Many of the stories and encounters that I came about in my research for this topic do contain at least two or three of these common trends. There are a good number of stories and anecdotes from people who have claimed to have experienced a time slip. While most are just personal stories of something that the individual can't explain, a few time slip stories have become rather widespread and well-known. Perhaps the most popular case of a supposed time slip is the Moberly-Jardane incident, or the Versailles time slip. In the summer of 1901, two scholars, Charlotte Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain, visited the Palace of Versailles, just one of the stops around Paris that the two were planning on seeing. The pair were rather unimpressed with the palace itself, and so decided to take a walk through the gardens to see the two Trianon palaces. They found that the Grand Trianon was closed to the public for a few days, so they instead went in search of the Petit Trianon. As the two women walked, they made a wrong turn and would end up passing by the way they intended to go. As the pair continued, they claimed to suddenly experience a feeling of oppression and dreariness come over them, and began to see some odd things. Charlotte Moberly would later write about this feeling, saying, "...everything suddenly looked unnatural, therefore unpleasant. Even the trees seemed to become flat and lifeless, like woodworked in tapestry. There were no effects of light and shade, and no wind stirred the trees." Eleanor Jourdain saw what looked like a very old farmhouse, which had an old-style plow by it. This was unusual, since there wasn't supposed to be any such farmhouse in the gardens. The two came across several men who they said looked like palace gardeners, who told them to keep walking straight along their path. The two women went on and then saw another group of men who they described as very dignified officials, dressed in long grayish-green coats with small three-cornered hats. As the two approached the edge of a wooded area, they came across another man. Eleanor Jardine described this encounter, saying, The man slowly turned his face, which was marked by smallpox. His complexion was very dark. The expression was evil and yet unseeing. And though I did not feel that he was looking particularly at us, I felt a repugnance to going past him. The two would finally come across another man who pointed them in the right direction of the Petit Trianon, which would have them walk over a bridge in the garden. As Charlotte Moberly walked over the bridge, she saw a woman wearing a light summer dress and a shady white hat, who was drawing at the time. At first glance, Charlotte thought that the woman to be another tourist, but upon another look, it seemed like the woman was dressed in old-fashioned clothes. The woman's face and look seemed very familiar to Charlotte Moberly, and afterwards it dawned on her that this woman appeared to look exactly like Marie Antoinette, the last queen of France who was executed during the French Revolution in 1793. While certainly a strange event, the two women did not talk about their afternoon walk through the palace gardens for quite some time. It wasn't until three months later that they decided to try and get to the bottom of what they saw, and so they both wrote separate accounts of their experience that day and then compared them. After seeing the similarities of what they both remembered on that odd day, the pair thought that they might have somehow gotten a glimpse into the past, and saw the palace gardens as they existed in the year before the end of the French monarchy. Charlotte and Eleanor visited the gardens again on several occasions, but they could not find the exact route that they remembered on that summer day in 1901. A decade after their strange afternoon, the two would write a book about their experience, in which they would make claims that the grounds were haunted in some way. The book would become a hit, and many people read about the story of two women who entered some type of strange time warp in which they were actually seeing people as they were in the gardens two centuries before. As fantastic and intriguing as the story is, it goes without saying that the book and claims of Moberly and Jourdain received a lot of criticism. There have been put forth numerous claims to solve the questions of what exactly happened to them on that day. One explanation involves a French poet named Robert de Montequois, He was known for throwing parties on the palace garden grounds in which he and his friends would dress up in period costumes and dresses. So rather than suddenly be transported into the 18th century, the two women could have just walked into a costume party without realizing it. An explanation for Charlotte Moberly seeing Marie Antoinette is that she simply saw a woman at the party dressed as Marie Antoinette sitting in the gardens. One piece of the Versailles time slip story that didn't add up to the critics was the bridge that the two said that they crossed over, which was when Charlotte Moberly said to have seen the French Queen. It was realized that this bridge in the garden wasn't actually around in 1901 when the pair first visited, but was constructed a couple years later. This would make the story even more outlandish, as it would involve people from the past mixed with the garden layout of the future. It is now believed that the two simply incorporated the bridge as part of their story after some follow-up visits when it was actually there, perhaps inadvertently not remembering that the bridge wasn't there during their first walkthrough. This is just one example of the story becoming more complicated and intriguing as time went on. A man named Michael Coleman looked into the story of Charlotte Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain and the history of their book and he found that their earliest drafts and records of their trip had very little in it to suggest some type of supernatural experience. It was only in later writings that the women start to add more elements to their story that suggested something very, very strange was going on. So it could be what happened to be a case of just two ladies wandering lost in the gardens was slowly transformed over time into a fantastic tale of haunted gardens or time traveling. So at this point, while the Versailles time slip may be one of the most well-known examples of this phenomenon, it also is one that has been heavily debunked and criticized. Another possible time slip event occurred in 1957, and involved three young men who were British Royal Navy cadets. In October of that year, the three were conducting a map-reading exercise. The plan was for the trio to make their way across a five-mile stretch of countryside to reach a designated endpoint. The route was to take the three men by the Suffolk village of Kersey. During their exercise, the three men approached what looked like an old village. It was here that the strangeness first began. As the naval cadets walked up to the village, silence engulfed them. The clinging of church bells stopped, a group of nearby ducks went silent, and the noise of a running stream faded. As they walked into the village, even the breezy wind appeared to have just vanished. Everything appeared to be completely still and quiet. Not even the leaves and the trees seemed to be moving anymore. The streets of the village were empty as the three walked through. They spotted not a single person, nor a single car. In fact, they saw nothing of what a modern place would look like, but to them, the buildings looked almost medieval in appearance, as one would later describe. The three slowly walked up to the first building that they came across, and peered through a window. The place seemed to be a butcher shop, but again, not a modern one. One of the cadets would later say about looking through the window of the shop. There were no tables or counters, just two or three whole oxen carcasses, which had been skinned and in places were quite green with age. There was a green painted door and windows with smallish glass panes, one at the front and one at the side, rather dirty looking. I remember that as we looked through that window in disbelief at the green and moldy carcasses, The general feeling, certainly, was one of disbelief and unreality. Who would believe that in 1957 that the health authorities would allow such conditions? The group walked on to the next building, which looked like a house, and they also looked through the windows. It appeared to be abandoned, completely empty inside. The eerie feeling of this empty village started to grow until the three cadets decided to call it quits and get away from the odd place. They ran down the main street exiting the village, not stopping their quick escape until they had reached the top of a nearby hill. Once there, they suddenly realized that the sounds had returned, they could hear the church bells once again, and they could see smoke rising from the chimneys that was not there while they had been inside the village. They decided to run a few hundred yards further from the village until they had sufficiently shaken off the weird feelings that the village had brought on. What exactly those three young men experienced had remained a bit of a mystery. William Lang, a member of the group, would later say about that place. It was a ghost village, so to speak. It was almost as if we had walked back in time. I experienced an overwhelming feeling of sadness and depression and courtesy, but also a feeling of unfriendliness and unseen watchers which sent shivers up one's back. I wondered if we'd knocked at a door to ask a question who might have answered it. It doesn't bear thinking about The story from the three teenage cadets was mostly brushed off by their training officers. The fact that the three were so young and were also unfamiliar with the area made those in charge believe that they actually did just reach the village of Kersey, but their imagination just got the better of them. The three cadets would just continue on with their training, and their strange experience that day would be put behind them for many years. It wasn't until the 1980s in which William Lang and his fellow former cadet friend Michael Crowley back in contact to discuss that bizarre day. The trip into the village had been bothering William Lang for many years, and it had stuck with him as something unexplainable. Michael Crowley had been able to mostly forget and move past it, but even decades later could still recall how odd the silence was, the fact that there were no cars or streetlights around, and the unusual butcher shop that they looked into. In search for answers, William Lang got in contact with author Andrew McKenzie, a member of the Society for Psychical Research. It was McKinsey who looked over the men's story and thought that it sounded a lot like a case of retrocognition, or a time slip. McKinsey believed, after reading the details sent in by the former cadets, that they had not entered the village of Cursey of 1957, but rather a version of the village of Kersey from centuries ago. After doing some research, Mackenzie would estimate that the trio had entered the village as it existed around the year 1420. At this point, the village had been ravaged by the Black Death Plague 70 years before, killing over half its population. This could explain why the village felt and looked so empty and abandoned. Also, Mackenzie found it odd that the men could not remember seeing the church during their walkthrough, as it is the major landmark and can easily be seen on the main street that they were on, in 1420, however, the church was still under construction and unfinished. While Andrew McKenzie might believe that the group of cadets did experience a time slip and entered into the medieval version of the village briefly before running away and escaping the time-warping effect, others have put forth more simple explanations. Perhaps the most obvious thing to point out is that the village of Cursey does still have a very old look about it. The village dates all the way back to the year 900, and still has many buildings that were initially constructed centuries ago. The fact that the village still has a medieval look about it is a reason why it has been used in numerous period films about those times. Since the three teenage cadets were not familiar with the village, it could be that they were just so distracted by the medieval-looking buildings that they didn't notice any signs of a modernized version of the old village. Also to consider, because of protest about protecting the village's skyline, Overhead lines were set to be constructed behind the houses along the main street, so they would not be visible to someone walking along. And there's the fact that all the houses had glass windows is something to consider, as glass was expensive and very rare to be found in common houses in the 15th century. Still, while there are some explanations to answer some of what the cadets witnessed that day, there are still some elements of their story that remains a mystery, why the village seemed abandoned and why they saw no cars at all during their time in Cursey is strange. There's also the stillness and lack of sound during their brief stay in the village that adds an eerie unknown factor to the whole thing. So, whether the story of the medieval Kursi is just the confused imagination of three teenage cadets, or if the group did somehow stumble into a time slip, it is something that's still discussed and debated. Another strange experience came about in 1979. Two married couples, Jeff and Pauline Simpson and Lem and Cynthia Gisby, were traveling through France on their way to Spain to stay on vacation. Late at night, the group decided to find a place to sleep, and they pulled over to the next motel that they came across. Unfortunately, there was no rooms available, so they had to continue driving. A little further on, they drove onto a cobbled street passing what they described as an old-fashioned sign that was advertising for a circus. A little further up the small road, they came across an old-timey-looking inn. The tired travelers pulled over and decided to stay there for the night. They entered the stone building and were relieved that this place did have available spaces for them, so the two couples were shown to their rooms. They were intrigued and a bit confused to see that this hotel seemed very old-fashioned and had very basic furniture nothing modern at all. The windows in the hotel just had wooden shutters, no glass. There were no visible telephones. Despite the oddities, the group ate a basic meal of steak and eggs and then retired to their rooms for the night. The next morning, the two couples met in the hotel's dining room for breakfast before setting off for the day. All four were confused to see that everyone else seemed to all be wearing old-fashioned clothes. A pair of men that were dressed like turn-of-the-century policemen were also in the dining room eating. A woman showed up in a silk evening gown, which Pauline Simpson would later remember as weird, saying, It was strange. It looked like she had just come from a ball, but it was 7 in the morning. I couldn't take my eyes off her. Despite the odd environment, the group enjoyed their brief stay in the hotel. The two couples took a number of pictures of themselves and several places around the inn. They were especially excited to see that the bill for the two rooms cost them only 19 francs, or two pounds. Two weeks later, the four were on their return journey from their vacation. They were driving along the same route that they had taken, and when they were in the area, decided to spend another night at the old-fashioned but very cheap hotel. The group did find the cobble road along with the old weathered circus sign, and so they continued driving along. The hotel itself, however, was nowhere to be found. After spending a little time driving around trying to find it, they decided to just cut their losses and continued on in search for another place to stay. After the couples had returned home from their vacation, they got the film developed from their trip. Supposedly, the few pictures that they had taken at the hotel did not develop correctly. There was nothing to show for their weird stay at the old stoned inn beside their memory. Four years later, the Simpson and Gisby families tried to find the hotel again on another vacation trip, but once again they could not find it, and the locals did not know what hotel in the area they were talking about. There was one local hotel that seemed to somewhat match their description, but when they visited it, the couple stated that it wasn't the right one. This story is another example of what some would call a time slip, inferring that the couple had entered into the past while driving along the road, The descriptions of the hotel would make it seem that it would fit around the early 1900s, but not 1979. While this story does involve the word of multiple people, many who have heard it claim that it was either made up or the group were confused about their location. Maybe they had taken a wrong turn somewhere and were much further off from where they thought they were. So when they tried to return to the hotel, they were not actually returning to the same place where they had been the last time. The way that the film negatives of their time at the hotel were something missing is quite strange, as it would be the only piece of evidence of their stay at the hotel. One could think that perhaps the effects of the time slip made it impossible for such pictures to survive the jumps back and then forward in time. Or one could think that there never was any pictures taken in the first place, since the whole story is just a fabrication made up by the couples. As with many other cases of potential time slips, There are people who will look into each story with the intention of debunking it. As for the vanishing hotel, that is what British writer Ginny Randalls attempted to do. Ginny pointed out that if it was truly a time slip, and the couples were transported almost 70 years in the past, why did they not cause any sort of commotion during their stay? Would the staff and guests of the hotel in the year 1905 not question the futuristic car pulling up, or a group of four people wearing much different clothing, or the fact that they paid with money dated in the future. It is a strange story to consider, especially that there is a similar hotel in the area that did seem to match the one described by the couples, but they do insist that that isn't the right hotel that they stayed in. If the whole story was made up, or if there was a chance that the group had just gotten their location mixed up, it would seem to me that at least one of the four would later come out and tell the truth. But for what it's worth, the couples insisted that their experiences really happened, and no one has been able to definitively debunk or explain what really happened to them that night in the hotel. There's another instance of a possible time slip which revolves around a missing building, this one taking place in the United States, in Oklahoma. Three men, Carl, Mark, and Gordon, were driving a pickup truck to a cattle pasture. They were sent there to pick up a feeder. The property they were sent to had a barbed wire gate leading off the road, there was no lock on it, so the men had no issues continuing. There's no set driveway in the property, so the men had to drive through a field of tall grass up to where the barn was. The feeder they'd been told about was next to a big red barn, but when the men tried to load it up to the truck, they discovered that it was still half full, making it too heavy to haul away. The group decided there was nothing they could do, and so decided to leave, circling around the barn to make their way out. But as they drove around the barn, they saw another building nearby, a large two-story white house. The house didn't have any lights on or vehicles out, and it looked mostly abandoned. The three men left the property telling their boss about the situation. The boss said he would take care of it and would make sure that the feeder is emptied out, so that the men could go out again and actually pick it up. The next day, the men were told that the feeder was ready to be picked up, so they drove off in the evening to go retrieve it. Carl would say that they decided to check out the big white house they saw on the hill, as it seemed abandoned and they wanted to see what was inside of it. The men had put their shotguns in the back of the truck, in case they had any run-ins with any violent squatters who were living in the house at the time. The three once again drove to the property and through the field of grass. This time they decided to check out the house first, so they drove around the barn. It was then that they stopped, completely baffled. Carl said about this, the house was no longer there. We walked up the hill where it stood and there was no signs of demolition, no foundation, nothing at all. What we all seemed to witness the night before was no longer there. We have talked to each other over the years, but none of us can begin to explain the vision. The men had no explanation for the sudden missing house that they had seen just the day before. They finished their job of hauling the feeder away from the property and were only left with questions. The story is similar to that of the vanishing hotel, and that there was only a single building of an area that seemed to suddenly go missing. Just as with the old French hotel, where the couples were able to find the cobblestone road and the old circus sign, but the hotel itself was missing. In this case, the three men noticed nothing else change about the property except for the missing big white house. The red barn and the feeder were in the exact same spots, but the house on a nearby hill was just gone. Unlike the hotel story, it seems highly unlikely that the men could have gotten lost or were looking at a different property, so it's hard to come up with any explanations. It seems the only possibilities are that they are lying about the whole thing, or they really did see something one day that wasn't there the next. And it is this possibility that has opened the door for some to suggest that it could be the product of a time slip. A good number of time slip stories take place while either driving or stopping at some place off the road but it has also been a factor in some unexplained, mysterious flying experiences as well. Perhaps the most famous flying time slip story comes from what happened to Sir Victor Goddard, a Royal Air Force pilot. Goddard would be a high-ranking air marshal for the RAF during World War II, but he is also known for a strange occurrence that happened to him before the war. In 1935, Goddard was flying to Edinburgh in Scotland from Andover in England. His flight path took him over an abandoned airfield in Drim, which had been out of service for several years. Foliage and plant life had spread out over the airfield, and cattle could be seen walking along the now empty space. Goddard didn't think the airfield to be of any significance at the time, and continued on with his flight until he reached his destination. A few days later, he would make his return trip, and it was now that something very strange happened. Goddard followed his same flight path back, which again took him near the Drem airfield. As he approached that area, he flew through a storm that had suddenly popped up. Goddard would say that the storm was pretty unusual because the clouds all seemed to be tinted with a yellowish color. As Goddard was caught in the direct path of the strange storm, strong winds and rain caused him to lose direction. He was fighting just to remain in control of his aircraft. At one point, he began to lose altitude, and this is where his story really gets interesting. As Goddard's plane dropped, it eventually broke underneath the cloud cover, and for a short period of time, he entered a patch of completely calm weather. After a few moments of flying, he could see that up ahead was the abandoned Drem airfield that he had passed on his first trip. This time, though, it looked drastically different. Goddard flew his plane directly over the airfield, and took a good look down. He no longer saw a broken-down hangar and tarmac covered in plants, but instead it looked like a fully operational base. He spotted four airplanes on the ground, all painted yellow, but one of them was very unfamiliar. Unlike the biplanes that Goddard was used to flying, this strange plane he spotted on the ground only had a single wing on each side of the fuselage. As he passed over at very low altitude, he saw a number of people working on the planes. The mechanics were all wearing blue overalls, not the standard traditional brown overalls of the RAF. Goddard was quite confused, and only had a few moments to take in what he was seeing. Though he didn't understand what or where he exactly was looking down at, soon his plane entered the other side of the storm, and he was once again too busy to worry about the strange planes he saw at what should have been an abandoned airfield. Goddard managed to fly through the strong storm, eventually landing back at his base with a weird story to tell his buddies. The other pilots at the base didn't really think too much of his story, either believing he was making the whole thing up as a joke, or he had just gotten lost along his way. Nonetheless, for years, Goddard would remember what he saw on that strange flight. Planes painted a different color, mechanics wearing a different color of overalls, and a bustling airfield which was completely abandoned the previous day. While certainly interesting, the most intriguing part of Victor Goddard's story happened a few years later. Four years later in 1939, the Royal Air Force began to make some changes. New airplanes were painted in a yellow color. A brand new monoplane, called the Magister, was put into production, the start of transitioning away from the biplanes that the Royal Air Force had used just a few years back. New mechanic uniforms were changed from brown over to blue, and to top it all off, the airfield at Drem was cleaned up and once again put back into commission. So what is there to make about Sir Victor Goddard's story? Is it possible that when flying into a freak storm, he had flown into some type of time slip, and for a few seconds got a glimpse of Drum Airfield as it would exist a few years in the future? Goddard was a respected officer in the RAF, not the type of person anyone would expect to make up stories of strange planes and colors that didn't match the Royal Air Force at the time. Some people claim that Goddard did in fact experience a time slip. Goddard himself could come up with no logical explanation, and believe that he must have either had a vision of the future in that brief moment flying over Drum Airfield, or to actually pass into the future before being pulled back to his present. Whatever happened to Victor Goddard on this flight is anyone's guess, as the story comes only from him. Goddard isn't the only pilot to have experienced such a strange vision of a place during a flight. Another mysterious event happened in 1976 in America. Kenneth Bacon, who was the presiding judge for the Oklahoma State Court of Appeals in Tulsa, decided to take a leisurely flight on a nice summer day. He took off from Tulsa, aiming to reach Hayes, Kansas, in about three hours. He reached out to Tulsa Flight Services and was told that the weather was clear, that he shouldn't expect to see a cloud in the sky for his flight. Judge Bacon would describe his experience of what happened next. I'd been flying for about an hour or so. It was marvelous. I hadn't even seen a wisp of a cloud or another airplane. All I had to do was sit there and enjoy the flight. I had my head down in the cockpit looking at a flight chart. It apparently had been some time since I glanced up or looked at the sky, because suddenly I felt what appeared to be cold air on my bare back and shoulders. That didn't make any sense. What I saw as I looked around... Well, let me explain the temperature. It had dropped instantly at least 15 or 20 degrees. That kind of temperature change, where I was flying, and the weather forecast I'd had from flight service simply did not compute. I looked around in disbelief. A short time before, I'd been in a cloudless sky. Now I was surrounded by black clouds that seemed to be churning with great energy and mixing with off-white colors. I was actually shocked at how the weather had changed so quickly, so drastically. Even faster than I can relate what was happening, the clouds were closing around me as swiftly as they had formed, seemingly out of nowhere. I was in the midst of a huge thunderstorm, and I didn't cherish the idea at all of finding myself in a hailstorm and my little fabric-covered bird. I didn't waste another second in searching for some place to land. I saw a clear bright opening in the Wall of Blackness, and the center of that hole, like a miracle, was one of the largest airports I'd ever seen. There was very long runways and no obstacles. I was already in my descent, one eye on the boiling clouds and the other on my flight chart. On the chart, I saw an airport layout that resembled the long runways toward which I was flying. The chart read, Habit Field. i never heard of it, and I was even more surprised to discover that the chart didn't indicate any listed radio frequencies for the field. Judge Kenneth Bacon would attempt to radio the airport on multiple frequencies, but got nothing in return. He tried flying low and buzzing the tower twice— But got no response. It was at this point that Bacon realized something was very off with his huge airport. He spotted no planes on the runways, could see no activity in the flight tower, no light signals. With the storm overhead, Bacon decided to just make a landing and deal with any consequences later. He managed to land despite the strong winds, noticing that tall weeds were growing out of cracks in the runway. As Bacon got out to secure his plane, He managed to get a good up-close look at the flight tower. This is how he described what he saw in that moment. I looked up at the huge tower again, and the sense of something wrong really hit me. One large pane of glass in the tower was broken out. The place had to be filled with dust and debris. Then I saw a door, banging open and shut in the wind. Not a soul stirred. I began to wonder if all this was real. Nothing was right, and everything was wrong. The feeling became stronger and stronger not because of any imagination, but because of what I kept running into. As Bacon began to walk around the perimeter of the airport building, he noticed a lawnmower up on some blocks with an open toolbox beside it. Beside the toolbox was an open thermos, half filled with coffee, which was covered in dust. In fact, to what Judge Bacon could see, everything at the airport seemed to be covered in dust and dirt. He tried calling and whistling, but no one responded. There didn't seem to be a single person in the whole airport. To him, it looked like the airport had been abandoned as quickly as possible, but several years ago, and no one had ever come back to clean up. Bacon continued his walk around, trying to find anything to give him some clues as to where he was or what had happened. He spotted a dirty pickup truck that had the name Hangover Mining Company on the side. There was a number of vehicles in the parking lot, but all seemed to have also been abandoned a long time ago. Many had windows down, and the insides were covered in dust. Bacon would later say about his walk around the abandoned airport. Now, when I look back on it and review the feelings I was going through, it seems kind of funny. You can laugh at yourself when it's all over, but it certainly wasn't funny at the time. Everything I was used to at an airport was foreign. It was alien. A strange airport, strange weather, strange feelings, and the large tumbleweeds bouncing and rolling along didn't help any. Bacon decided that he had enough of this place and headed back to his small plane. As he walked back, he noticed one last strange thing. Despite the black and rolling storm clouds overhead, there was no rain at all. The airport seemed completely bone dry, as if there hadn't been any rain at all in the place for a very long time. Though the storm still appeared wild overhead, Bacon decided that he could handle it, and got back in his plane and took off. He flew very low under the cloud cover, and despite the strong winds, managed to make it a short distance to the airport in Lyons, Kansas. A shocked attendant met Bacon as he landed, surprised that such a small plane like his could have handled the storm. Bacon quickly told him about his strange stay at the neighboring airport, and the attendant seemed shocked. He told the judge that no one lands there anymore, and that there's some very strange things going on there. When asked by Bacon what exactly was wrong with the airport, the attendant didn't have any other answer beyond that no one used it anymore. Eventually, the storm passed over, and Bacon began to check over his plane to take off again and finally reach his destination. However, during his check, he noticed something that was very strange. In his tailwheel, a thin wire was sticking all the way through. He could not see how such a small, flexible wire could puncture through two inches of solid rubber. Others came over to see the spectacle, including the airport's inspector and top mechanic and both said that what they were seeing was flat-out impossible. No one could come up with an explanation for how his tire could have been punctured straight through with a small wire. They called it a physical impossibility. But multiple people at the airport managed to get their hands on the tire to see for themselves, and several pictures were taken of Bacon and the tire at the airport also. Eventually, the judge got a replacement tire and got to where he needed to go, but the strange events of what happened on that day stuck with him. The judge had another pilot friend who also worked as a reporter for a local newspaper, so he told him his story and asked if the reporter could help him figure out what was going on. The reporter made some calls, and the most he could get was someone saying that the airport was an old military base that was now privately owned. Bacon later heard that the airport reopened as Sunflower Field. Looking this up, it seems to be now named the Sunflower Aerodrome Gliderport, and is privately owned and is used for glider flying. As for Habit Field, I looked up the area and found information about an abandoned Navy airbase which was called Hutchinson Air Base Industrial Tract, or HABIT for short. It closed in 1968 and then was reopened as the Sunflower Airport in 1971. So it would seem that Bacon's landing there was five years after it had reopened under the new name. But apparently it hadn't either been new enough or noticeable enough for its name to be updated on Bacon's flight chart. The fact that it was an abandoned military base might explain why the chart had no radio frequency information on it, if it was assumed to be empty and out of use. So Judge Kenneth Bacon's story does share some similarities with Victor Goddard. Both were flying planes when they hit a freak storm, and upon dipping below the storm, they saw something strange. Judge Bacon said he felt that the airport just seemed off, like it was a place missing in time. Seeing some large airport completely empty and seemingly quickly abandoned, coupled with the strong storm above, and it's easy to see why he could have felt like something very unusual was going on. While at first glance his story, along with the similarities it shares with Victor Goddard's experience with the Drum Airport, it could be seen that his landing at the airport was some type of time slip. Perhaps the storm he flew through also created some type of time warp, and he entered a period of time in the past where the airport was still completely abandoned. Or it could be that he did land at the now Sunflower Aerodrome glider port, and it just happened to be completely empty that day. And the only thing that's actually unusual about the story was the freak storm that showed up out of nowhere. So while that's certainly a possibility, the story itself is still very odd and eerie. And there's also the so-called physically impossible situation of this small wire that went straight through Bacon's solid rubber wheel. And the fact that the Hangover Mining Company truck that he saw at the airport had a name for a business that apparently did not, or never did, exist. So, once again, it's a mystery as to what exactly was going on with Kenan Bacon's experience that day. Did he enter some sort of time slip to another time or alternate dimension, or was he just rattled from a strong storm and his imagination got the best of him in a creepy empty airport? One thing that seems oddly absent from most time slip stories or experiences. Is for there to be any sort of confusion or commotion between encounters from people from different time periods. For example, in the case of the Vanishing Hotel, if it really was a time slip, the people of 1905 certainly didn't act shocked to see people from 1970s suddenly show up and ask no questions. When Victor Goddard flew over the alleged future version of the Drum Airport, it was as if he was invisible as none of the mechanics bothered to look up at the airplane suddenly flying right above them. There are a few instances of supposed time slips, where everything is not so completely calm, however. One such experience happened to a Missouri man in 2003. A man named Kell was leaving a local gas station in Springfield, Missouri, and headed back to his Chevrolet truck. As he was a few steps away, suddenly a man ran up to him. The man started screaming at Kel, What year is it? Kel was shocked and took a step back, describing the man as wearing what looked like an old-timey business suit that would look like something Teddy Roosevelt would wear. After the man asked again what year it was, Kel said 2003. His answer made the man look shocked for a second, but then he turned angry. He once again stepped up to Kel and shouted, What year is it? Kel again answered that it was 2003 and the stranger finally fell quiet for a moment. Kel used the opportunity to quickly step back to his truck and climbed inside. But when he sat down and looked out the window, this strangely dressed man was just gone. Kel looked around the outside of the gas station, but the man had seemingly just vanished in a matter of seconds. Kel would never have a clear answer as to what exactly happened to him that day with a random encounter of a strange man at the gas station. Was it someone from the early 1900s who had time-slipped into 2003, or was it just some person off the rocker who liked to dress up in old-fashioned clothes? Though Kel has told his story around, he's personally reluctant to be an advocate for the belief in time travel or time-slips. He said about his strange encounter, These stories are not so rare as people think, but the stories are so bizarre that I don't think anyone would want to come forward to tell it. Who would believe you? Kel does bring up a good point about that. Looking online, I've come across a pretty large number of other personal stories of people who claim to have experienced some sort of time slip. Some claim to have suddenly stepped into a period of the past or future. Others say that they see or encounter someone who appears to belong to another time period. Many of the stories I've read also mention how they're not sure what happened, and they haven't told anyone besides maybe their closest friends and family, for fear of ridicule or being labeled as a crazy person. I think the average listener to this can relate, if you can imagine yourself in a situation of some of the people discussed in this episode, of seeing or encountering something that felt like another time, or saw something one day and it was just gone the next, it could be hard to talk about that and be taken seriously. On the matter of time slips, it's hard to say exactly what they are, what causes them, and if they are real at all. It could be easy to write the whole thing off as either just a bunch of people lying or being confused, but it is intriguing to consider, given the sheer amount of reports of people all experiencing something similar and something unexplained. Some people have claimed that time slips are just visions, that the individuals experiencing them aren't physically in the different time area, but are rather just experiencing it as a type of observer of what was happening. Others think that time slips can act as a sort of physical time-traveling doorway or window, and that the people can actually step into the past or future, and then step back to their present. I've also seen arguments that time slips aren't exactly moving to another time, but rather into a different or parallel dimension, stepping sideways into another world that is slightly different from our own, and happens to be a different time as well. This could explain some time-slip stories where people can see locations or buildings a certain way one day, and then something completely different the next. At the same time, many people remained entirely skeptical of the whole idea of time-slips. As I've mentioned throughout the episode when discussing possible examples of time-slips, oftentimes there are logical and simple explanations to answer what was going on, and sometimes it could just boil down to the person or people involved Are just fabricating or making up stories for fun or publicity. For now, time slips remain a fringe topic, even among the supernatural and paranormal communities, as there is often nothing to go on besides just people's words of what happened, and there's not much understanding of how any of this could work or be possible. Whether there's any truth to this phenomenon, or if it's all just a trick of the mind, The subject of time slips remain an extremely interesting phenomenon to consider and study. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you have your own feedback or ideas on time slips, or any of these stories that I've gone over in this episode, please write into the show. You can reach us at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow and contact Strange Matters on our social media sites on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If any of you listeners have your own personal experience with a time slip or something similar, please feel free to share that as well. And as always, if any listeners have any suggestions or ideas for future episode topics, let us know. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care everybody.